As we've been in this rescue mission series, we've been talking about uh, just making sure that you're, you're getting in a group and making sure that you're going to be in one from now till Easter and, and giving it a try. And we've opened up a, a lot of new groups. And my wife and I have led groups before and at different times, you know, the group leaders, some, some of you there in the room, you might know, you know, every once in a while you start with a crowd breaker, try to get everybody talking. And, and I love asking people, I love asking friends, like if, if you hit it big, if you won the lottery and, you know, if you grew up in a Baptist church, that means you didn't buy the ticket, but you found it on the ground. And so, but if some, by some miracle of God, you won the lottery, what would you do with it, you know? And so I love getting past all the obligatory stuff that people say, and, and I love hearing about the dream cars, the dream homes, the dream vacations, and all of those things. But I'll tell you what is a fun question that I don't think I've ever asked people before, but I found on the, on the internet doing some research is not what you do with a million dollars, but what would you do for a million dollars? Listen to, uh, yeah, oh no, it was right. Listen to what um, a few people said that they would do. Some said that they would stay on a diet for two years. This would do it. I would stick to it for a million dollars. Most all these people have, have stopped since January 1st, but they would, they would do that. Um, others said they would stop watching television. And I don't know if Netflix counts, but maybe uh, so for a million dollars. Others would tattoo your forehead, like to be an advertisement, a walking billboard. Okay, I don't know if any of you would do that. Just so you know, like Apple, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, they don't need you to do that. So if you want to be like tattooed Betty Mae's consignment shop or whatever it would be up here, you know, and you're willing to do that, that's great if Betty Mae's got a million dollars. Other people said that they would be willing to live alone on an island um, without, uh, without their kids, without, um, uh, with only, without their spouse, we had, this could be fun, um, with only flint and a machete for a year. That's what people would say. Um, 8% of people said they would allow one of their limbs to be surgically removed. Not a finger, not a toe, not a phalange, but rather you would like allow the entire limb. Is there anybody in here that would do that? Just, just anybody? You can raise your hand and tell me. And, uh, and so, one, maybe, okay. I'm proud of everyone but the one guy that raised his hand, but he was doing it for me. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. The, uh, that's crazy. Other people said they would give up 10 years of their life for a million dollars. Now for three million, one survey found that one in 14 Americans would murder a stranger. (laughs) That makes you feel good about going to Walmart later, doesn't it? (laughs) When asked about in-laws, the money goes down and the percentage of people goes way higher for that. (laughs) We have a problem in our society relative to materialism. I mean, relative to the idea of just the, the obsessive, accumulation of unnecessary things. I mean, I know every time Apple comes out with a product, I, I struggle, I really do, and, and I eventually get them, but do I need it right then? And we have kind of this tension, this war inside of us, and th- does this mean that there are certain brands we buy and certain things we don't? Is there, is there an amount? There's one blogger that said you're only supposed to have seven of everything. You know, what does this exactly mean? What is materialism? Well, I believe, again, it's the accumulation of unnecessary things, the desire to accumulate more goods and stuff just because. And materialism is really, according to Scripture, it's a, it's a modern-day synonym for greed. I mean, greed is just the intense desire for power or for wealth. It's when things get twisted, the desire for stuff and things gets twisted. And clouds our minds, we obsess about it. In the, in the definition of materialism and greed, you find words like covetousness. And if you'll remember, the 10th commandment that God gave to Moses was, thou shalt not covet. You shouldn't 
want the things your neighbor has. Jesus addressed it in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says to a group of people, he says, take care and listen, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, and we know this, but we forget it from time to time, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And honestly, we as a church body, we've got to figure out exactly maybe what we believe about this and understands God, God's rescue for this because from the outside looking in, there's nothing that makes people more cynical about the cross of Christ than money. And whether it's fair or unfair, people judge the things that, that people who, who claim to be Christians they have and they own. And, and truly, I mean, in today's society, in American culture, and, and there's no judgment in this, we'll, we'll get to, to God's plan here in just a moment, but for most of us, I mean, we live in the, in the same neighborhoods, we, we buy the same clothes, we shop at the same places, we have the same cars, all of those things, but, but people look and they judge unfairly because for whatever, for whatever reason, they say this, listen, there's no difference between how a Christian handles money and how a non-Christian handles money. But just to put you at ease for just a little bit, I want you to understand that the Bible never calls for forced poverty. So there, there's a couple of conversations that are had in Scripture. One in particular comes up where, where Jesus, as a rich young ruler, he says, would you be willing to sell everything that you had and follow me? But that was his thing. That was, that was how Jesus was challenging that rich young ruler. And the Bible makes it clear that that guy was so tied into his stuff that he was holding so tightly that he would rather have his stuff than Jesus. And he made the decision not to follow Jesus. The Bible never calls for forced poverty, but it calls for us to be open-handed and to handle our things and to handle our money in a way that's truly pleasing to God. So what is God's answer to handling money in a culture like we have today, in a culture of materialism where we're bombarded all the time? What is God's answer that truly rescues us and more importantly sets the Christian apart in such a way that it draws people to Jesus? I want to give you two overarching, I hope, I hope taken positively, positive principles, positive boundaries that God put in place to help rescue us from materialism before it even begins. One you've heard probably most of your life growing up in the church, the other one maybe not so much, we'll get to in a second, but the first one is the principle of first fruits. In the Bible, the first part of your harvest or of your income was to be brought, and the Old Testament was to be brought to the priest so that God's work could continue. And the Proverbs say it this way. Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, of everything you make, of all your income other, in other places. In the Old Testament, the practice of giving to God had a percentage on it. And many of you have heard of this. It, it begins, as talked about in Deuteronomy 14. It was 10%. And it was known as, as giving the tithe. And giving God the, the first part of our income is a central financial principle for how God's people should handle their money differently than everyone else. And what it does for us is that reminds us, even in just giving this, this portion back, this first fruit back, it reminds us that everything that we have ultimately is given to us by God. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. And so in the New Testament, because this was raised so much, you would think that Jesus would there again put his stamp of approval on one of these Old Testament laws and, and fulfill it by saying, yeah, 10%, I'm good with that. But Jesus actually never says that. In fact, there's, there's the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus says to give up everything. There's a, there's a story where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, watching people in some type of service, watching people bring their tithes to, 
to the temple at the time and, and the Pharisees are going by and they're kind of parading it around. They're not only making big gestures and giving their money, they're like telling everyone how much they're giving. Aren't you glad we don't do that in church? That would be weird. As the buckets are passed, everybody's just throwing out numbers and you know, that's kind of strange. And Jesus says, you know, don't look at those guys. The disciples were enamored by them and Jesus took their eyes off those guys and he says, look at her. Look at her. And this little widow woman who has the Bible says she has two copper coins, two mites. She just has nothing. She's not giving nearly the amount that the other people are giving. But the Bible says, Jesus looked at him and says, she is giving everything she's got. And that pleased God. Not because she was giving so much, but because she was giving willingly from what God had given to her. So Jesus, as he typically does, he, he raises the bar. He says, Don't give 10%, give everything. Now let's be honest, when it comes to practical application, that's just not helpful. And so the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he gives us this instruction that carries us to this day. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So between you and God... God may lay one percentage or one amount on your heart that's different from anybody else, but between you and God, pray, the Apostle Paul says, pray about what you're going to give, let God lead you, and then give joyfully. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Don't worry about 5% or 10% or 15% or 20%. Just know that in your relationship with God, and hopefully you are spending regular time with Him, when He puts something on your heart, you know this is what He wants you to do, and then that's what you do in obedience. But the principle is there that you're giving of the first fruits, whatever that is, whether it's 1% or 2% of, of, of your income or whatever it is. And then later on, the Apostle Paul says, and then grow in the grace of giving. But what we give is private, really. I mean, you can't, you can't really tell. So whether or not a Christian gives to the church, whether or not they give of their first fruits, and many times from the outside looking in, you, you just can't really tell that. But I think other than the first fruits, one that we've looked at before, I think there's a, another overarching principle that really can help set the Christ follower apart. Money and giving and debt, things about money are mentioned more than 800 times in Scripture. It's talked about more than God's love because God knew we would need help with this. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you spend your money is what you value. Whether you spend it on date nights or whether you spend it on Starbucks or whether you spend it on your kids or whatever it is. Wherever you spend your money, that communicates a lot about you. So other than giving the first fruits there's another overarching principle that I'm going to call, and the scripture calls, leaving room at the edge of your field. So 800 references, two major things I think for us to remember. The principle of the first fruits, have you chosen between you and God? Is there something he's put on your heart to give first? And are you leaving room at the edge of your field? What does that mean? Let's look at Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I am the great I am. 
So the nation, the nation of Israel has always had a, a good amount of farming going on. And so, and so from the scriptures, there's this example, there's these instructions on what they should do as they're gathering the harvest. I mean, to, the, to this day, some of the most beautiful wheat and barley fields you'll find in the world are, are found in, in Israel. And so God gives them these guidelines on what to do. He's already told them, bring me your first fruit. And then he adds to it and he says, I want you to leave room on the edges of your field. Two other times in the Bible, in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 24, God kind of adds to this by just including some other harvest things to make it apply to people with, who have other vocations. And, and the idea is this from those other passages. No matter what it is, whether you're harvesting barley or, or wheat or olives or grapes in the vineyard, when you go through and you gather them and you pick them up and you find yourself kind of dropping some stuff and, and leaving it behind, just leave those there. Now, some of you are struggling with this already, aren't you? Because it's like if I own a vineyard and I drop a grape, that's money on the ground. And I'm going to go back through and pick that up. I'm gonna, I might even hire someone to go back through and pick that up. And God says, no, 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 just leave the olives there. Leave the grapes there. Leave all the, the leftover wheat and barley behind because, listen, I am using this to make provision for the poor, for the orphan, and the widow. This is their opportunity to go back through and be provided for from the margin that you've created, from the margin that I've given to you. So I want to talk about these edges a little bit because I think it's largely overlooked and I really believe it's God's answer that rescues us from materialism, from the obsessive accumulation of unnecessary things. I think we can be rescued from that when we determine in our hearts what we're going to do about first fruits and leaving room on the edges of our field. First of all, God never says anything about how big your field is. He never says you can only have a certain size field. He doesn't say you can only have one. In other words, he doesn't say that you can't shop at that store, you can't go to that mall, you can't have that thing, that, that luxury is too much, but rather just to recognize that everything that we have comes from him and we need to be willing to give it back to him. So he didn't give everyone the same size field. Everyone has the same opportunity to work hard, to reap a harvest, to make a living, and if they want to, expand their possessions. The other thing is that God never defines the edges of the field. In a section of the Bible that is filled with absolute measurements that apply to all sorts of things, I mean, you would think there would be dimensions for everyone's allowed to have this kind of field, and, and you know what, when you go through this principle of leaving room at the edges, what I want you to do is I want you to leave three feet here, or maybe if you have this size field, I want you to leave six feet here. There's nothing like that in all the Bible, even in this part where there's so many specific instructions. All God is saying is, listen, leave some room. Leave room at the edges. And I think it's amazing that hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, hundreds of years before the start of the church, God put these principles in place to take care of his church, to take care of the expansion of his people, and to take care of the poor, the widow, and those who would be in need at different times who come across our path. It's up to us to be prepared to meet those needs. And honestly, some of the most beautiful stories take place from the edges of the field. Here at Westridge, we have a benevolence ministry. People come in almost every day who need help with past due rent, utilities, whatever it might be. And we are able to, not just from the regular tithes and offerings that are given, but from going above and beyond, people that give above and beyond their tithes to our benevolence fund, we are able to day after day to help meet people's needs who come to us from a variety of circumstances. I mean, cynicism might say, well, those are just people that have been irresponsible. It's nice that the church does that. It's so much more than that. 
people in their weakest moments, they find that God is strong. And isn't that the way that it should be? Shouldn't the people of God be prepared? Shouldn't the church be prepared to be able to be generous at any time the opportunity comes up? The most beautiful stories happen at the edges of the field. In the book of Ruth, there's a story about a woman named Naomi. And Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they live in Bethlehem. And the Bible says that Bethlehem, a very small town at this point in history, came under a famine and so they decided to move. And they moved to the plains of Moab. They moved far away to a place that wasn't impacted by the famine. And at some point, we don't know what happens, but at some point after they move, we don't know how long after, Elimelech dies. Now, Elimelech and Naomi, they have two sons. And here again, we don't know what happens. We don't know if they went off to a battle one day because it seems like her boys also, they die at about the same time, it seems like, in the story. So now you have Naomi who left with her family some years before, over 10 years before. Now she's lost her husband and her two boys and she's left with two daughters-in-law. The daughters-in-law are Ruth, who the book is named for, and Orpah. And she has this moment with them and she says, listen, you you girls are are wonderful. You've been so good to me. You've been wonderful daughters-in-law. You were great wives to my boys, but my boys aren't here anymore. And so listen, I want you to stay here in your homeland where you've been. The guys married them after they got to this place. I want you to stay here and I want you to, to get remarried. I want you to have a family. I want, every, I want your life to be great. And the first daughter-in-law, Orpah, she comes to Naomi and she just hugs her. There's this very tender moment in Ruth chapter 1 where she hugs her and they express their love for each other and Orpah says, thank you for all that you've been to me and, and then she leaves to become a daytime talk show host and start an entertainment empire. It's an amazing rags to riches story. And then there's Ruth. And Ruth clings to her mother-in-law for everything that she's got and, and she's hugging her and she's kissing her and Naomi's like, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get rid of this girl. Ruth, I, w- I really want you to stay. And Ruth says, no, 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 do not urge me to leave you or return from following you for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And Naomi has this realization, I'm not getting rid of this one. And so Naomi and her daughter-in-law, they begin to journey back to Bethlehem, two widows in a male-dominated society that quite frankly have no real way of providing for themselves and for their own needs. And why wouldn't just they stay there? I mean, it would make total sense for Naomi to stay there with Ruth and to help Ruth get remarried and then Ruth could take care of her in Moab, but instead they make the choice to go back to Bethlehem. Why is that? Because I believe that Naomi knows that there's a principle in her homeland. There's a principle for people having margin in their lives, for the people of God to have margin in their lives and to leave room at the edges of their field and that they would be provided for from that. Ruth chapter 1 verse 22, the second part of that verse points out that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The Bible says that Naomi has a kinsman of her husband named Boaz. And by kinsman, it could be a a relative or just a a very close friend of of Elimelech, her husband who's passed on. The Bible says that Boaz has 
great wealth. And if Boaz has been living according to the teachings of Scripture, if he's been giving of his first fruits, and if he's been leaving room at the edges of, your, of his field, then that means he should have a great deal of margin in his life. Because if you live according to how the Bible says about money, the more you make, the more margin you will have. And I know oftentimes that that's not the case, and we see too many stories of people who found the lottery ticket in the Baptist Church parking lot, and they go and they, and they get the lottery money, and then they lose it all. Or rock stars and athletes who come into a great deal, have high-paying jobs, and then they lose it all. But here's the thing about this, is that no matter where you are today, if you don't have these positive principles, these boundaries in your life that God set forth, when you have a little, you won't have them in your life when you have a lot. And so they find Boaz's field, Ruth. Naomi sends Ruth into Boaz's field, and she begins to collect during the barley harvest. She begins to collect what's been left behind. And Boaz finds out about it. And he finds out that this, was, that this is the daughter-in-law of, of a friend of his who's died, who's passed on, and he sees it as an opportunity to provide. So he approaches Ruth, and he says, Listen, don't worry about any of the other fields in Bethlehem. I want you to stay in my field. And then he goes to his workers and he says, listen, I want you guys to purposely drop some stuff and and leave it behind because I want to be able to provide for her out of my abundance. Listen, the most beautiful stories happen in the edges of the field. And in this story later on, a love story is kindled, one of the most beautiful love stories in all of Scripture. And Ruth and Boaz become married. They become the great-grandparents of King David, part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. The most beautiful stories happen in the edges of the field of the field, when we're prepared for the unexpected moments, for the unexpected opportunities that we leave ourselves open to by living the way that God intended, by living the way that God intended to set the Christian apart. Unfortunately, there are many who call Jesus their Savior, who do not give any amount of first fruit or don't leave any room at the edges of their field. The result is for Christians, the same weeds tend to entangle our lives and certainly have entangled mine at different times to where we are so, we're as entangled as people who are apart from Christ. And they look at us and they say, there's really no difference in you than me. So why in the world would I come listen to stories about your Jesus? Why would I come listen to the rescue mission when you yourself are trapped? And we end up on the same endless treadmill pursuit of, of money and possessions that tend to wear people down and take up large spaces in their lives and in our lives. And then when God comes along or we hear a message like this one and, and we're reminded that there were some God-given boundaries that he put in our lives to, to help us know how to handle our finances, it feels like God or the pastor in this case is cramming things down your throat. You're welcome, by the way. That's not my intention. It feels like God is just cramming things in because everything else has crowded us out already and everything else is entangling us. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, he put these principles in place to give us opportunities that otherwise we would never see coming. It's always been his plan to take care of his people and for his people to take care of those in need. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers only once. Like the Bible says, listen, if you carve out room, if you carve out space, if you first, if you deal with the first fruits, and then maybe after a while you're able to begin to leave some room at the edges of your field, what you're going to find is you're going to have your needs met in ways that you never expected, in ways that maybe didn't make sense on paper, but because you honor God first, he takes care of you. But if we don't plan to leave room at the edges of our field that's when materialism creeps in and materialism is so 
deceptive because it's open-ended. I mean, it can go on forever. I mean, for all of us, we'll be accumulating stuff our entire lives. But even more so today, our, our consumer cult- culture constantly bombards us with the thought that the next thing can make us happy. I mean, more than half this room is looking forward to the game tonight for the commercials, not for the game. We get bombarded all the time. And the problem is there's always the next thing. So for every positive moment of getting that thing you've been wanting, there's this negative moment of realizing Apple has just made something else. I don't understand. I saw a rumor this week that the iPhone 6 will be solar powered. Are you kidding me? That's the greatest thing in the history of mankind. I'm going to want this. But for every time I get that box with that beautiful silver apple on it, and even the box is like something that makes angels sing, for every time I get that, for every time we get that, we find out that there's still yet something more. But where it crosses over into materialism is when we begin to obsess about the accumulation of unnecessary things. That's what materialism is, the obsessive desire to accumulate unnecessary things and watch what it does and you know this is true and it's been true in my life at different times honestly it's it's kind of embarrassing but it creates anxiety at times for others it might create depression at times proverbs 28 says a a greedy man stirs up strife but the one who trusts in the lord will be enriched and i think that passage is saying the greedy person the person who's always wanting more the person who's focused on accumulating stuff is just it's got some strife inside of them what else does materialism do? Well, materialism damages relationships. We have a, a culture of excess and entitlements to the point that if we don't have what we want, it's someone else's fault, isn't it? I mean, kids blame parents for not being good enough and not getting me the, the right clothes, the right shoes, and I don't have what I, my friends have because my parents don't go out and make enough money, and they really don't understand that yet, but they just think you've got the plastic thing and you've still got checks over there. Why can't you make this happen? Materialism damages relationships. It damages marriages. Spouses get uneasy and they, and, and they have a desire to want more. And, and whether you both go to work or, or whether just one of you goes to work, there get, begins to be blame when other people in your sphere of influence and your circle of friends. This is when materialism gets unhealthy, people, as we begin to blame one another for not making enough. And how dare you go and buy another purse? Or why did you go play a round of golf? I've got stuff that I need and I've got stuff that I want. It damages our relationships. Materialism crowds out the edges of our field. It doesn't allow us to leave room. It crowds us out. Materialism's best friend and closest ally is debt. And there's nowhere in Scripture that says debt is a sin. There are many principles in Scripture that the Bible lays out and says they're not sin, they're just choices. I mean, the way you give the first fruits and the way that you leave room on the edges of your field, these are choices that are put in front of you if you trust and if you believe that God can handle your finances better than you can. And if you trust that this is actually following this Jesus is actually a better way to live. These are choices. And you have the grace to not go along with it. But debt is our closest ally. And the Bible puts a choice in front of us. It says, listen, you can have debt, but just know this. The borrower is servant to the lender, and you get to choose how much of a slave you want to be. You know, for many of us in the, in the room over the last several years as a church, we've offered something called financial peace or the total money makeover. Many of you have heard Dave Ramsey on the radio, and I don't know how you feel about him or how he talks to people or whatever. He challenges me at different times. There's times I wish, oh, I wish you hadn't said that to that person, but you would have said it to me too. And so, but, there's so, but he's put a helpful plan in place to help you get freedom to help you get to freedom. 
And so as part of this Rescue Mission series, one of the groups that we're offering is Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace. It starts Tuesday night, and that may be the one decision you make today that helps you begin to fight against materialism. That you would just decide to create a budget and maybe begin to tackle some of the debt that you've already agreed to be a slave to. There's something else materialism does, and it's the, the worst of all of it. When we let it get out of control, when we let the obsessive accumulation of unnecessary things get out of control, materialism chokes out the gospel that's within us. It chokes out Jesus within us. Jesus is telling a story in Mark chapter 4. He's telling a parable, and he's telling a parable of a farmer throwing seeds, and the seeds that are being thrown out are the gospel. And the seeds land on four different types of soils, and Jesus describes what that means. And one of the places that the seeds landed in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, other seed, some of the seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and, and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And a while later, the disciples are asking, what, what exactly does, does this mean? What do all these seeds mean? And when Jesus gets to the point of, of describing this one in particular, he said, listen, these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of what? Of riches. And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Say, listen, we all want different things at different times. How do I know if materialism is choking me? How do I know if I need a rescue from materialism today? Listen, you ask yourself the question, has my desire for stuff, is it taking over my thoughts so much that it's crowding out the gospel? Do I think more about the things that I want rather than the cross of Jesus Christ and putting him on display? Listen, you can handle your finances apart from God, but when it comes to money, God says, listen, Test me in this and see if you can't trust me and see if I will not pour out more blessing on you than you can handle. Listen, you've got the freedom from Scripture not to apply these things, but you also have the freedom to move to generosity. Kim Blanchard gives us the definition of generosity that we love around here. Generosity is not about doing the minimum. It's every day looking for opportunities to do the unexpected. There's a story that's told about Alexander the Great who sees a, a, a beggar on the road and and the beggar's asking for a few coins, and, and Alexander throws the beggar some gold coins. And the people that are with Alexander, however they would refer to him, Lord, Master, listen, you didn't have to throw him gold coins. A few copper coins would have done what he needed. And Alexander responds and says, copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. Generosity goes is not about doing the minimum. It's every day looking for opportunities to do the unexpected. And how can we not look for opportunities to give back to this great God who is the great I am who sent his one and only son for us? He went way beyond what was expected. He didn't throw the copper to us. He threw at us the very, very best and gave it to us. And we have to make sure we don't allow anything to crowd out that message but in the way we live our lives we put him on display with the choices we make however god leads us listen when practiced i believe generosity can radically set us apart and cause people to want to hear more about the savior and generosity is the result of leaving room in the edges of your field 
for the unexpected opportunities that come your way, for the unexpected needs that come your way, for the opportunity to sponsor a child with Compassion International, for the opportunity to send someone on a mission trip, on a short-term trip, for the opportunity to meet the needs of a neighbor in need when something comes up in the community, someone loses a job and you have the opportunity to give them a little extra gas money, a little extra food money, whatever it is. Those opportunities are there because you have chosen to give God the first fruits and to leave room at the edges of your field. As a church, we started something back in November called the What If Experiment. It's a two-year experiment in generosity, a 24-month experiment to see if we can shock the world with our generosity. And the way that so many of you responded to this has been absolutely tremendous. You, many of you have chosen just to leave a little more room at the edge of the field, or many of you have chosen just to give a little bit more of the first fruits. We don't know what it is. We, you, you fill out the card, you turn it in, but listen, we don't, we don't know what that stuff is, but it's between you and God. It might have been 2%, it might have been 3%, it might have been 1%, you started somewhere. You may have been a tither your whole life giving 10% and you decided to move up. And some of you just said, you know what, I'm going to keep that first fruit percentage the same and I'm going to leave a little extra room at the edges of the field. And God is using this what-if experiment to do some incredible stuff. I mean, some of the first things that it's done is just kind of get us back to a healthy baseline as a church, something that we've struggled with since the bottom dropped out of the Northwest Atlanta economy five, six years ago. But because of your generosity, that baseline is quickly back to where it should be. And now we're able to do things that we never saw coming. Next week, we're going to be telling you a story that I think is is going to be exciting to hear. It's the beginnings of a story that's going to be awesome to watch unfold. And we get to be a part of it. And we get to be a part of it because of how generous this church is being. If you give it all to this church, you're part of the What If Experiment. And God's using you to do great things. One that I particularly know about that I just want to share My friend Tim Grandstaff, who's pastor of Genesis Church in Orlando, Florida, on the far east side of Orlando, he had some community leaders come to him, and they asked him if he would do an outreach event in the community, and and he already had one on his mind he wanted to do, and community leaders asked him for another, and so Tim decided he would do both, and he had told me back in November, he said, listen, I'm, I'm deciding to do this, I want you to pray about this, because I'm deciding to put this on my personal credit cards. So Tim put thousands of dollars on his credit cards. And I'm not sure it was the right thing. I'm not sure it was the God plan. I honestly tried to lovingly talk him out of it. I knew it wasn't going, I wasn't going to, but he just, I'm not sure that God wanted him to put that stuff on credit cards, but he did. And God used those outreach opportunities in tremendous ways to put the kingdom of God on display. And then as we saw, Tim's one of our church planners. So as we saw the giving come in through the what if experiment, we were able to make a decision as a team to give gifts to different ones of our church plants. We're going to be sharing many of those stories in the months ahead. And our director of missions and mobilization, Kevin Dunlap, he called Tim on Thursday. And he called Tim and he said, listen, as a church, this is, we love you, we miss you, we're so proud of you, here's what we're able to do for you right now. We hope it helps do a little bit something extra for Genesis Church. And you know what it was? It was almost to the dollar what Tim had put on credit cards in December. You see... Generosity gives us opportunities to do the things we never saw coming. We never saw it. And I believe more than anything else that generosity put into practice by giving of the first fruits and leaving room on the edges of our field is God's answer in a culture of consumerism to help keep back the weeds that entangle us all from time to time, to help keep back the weeds that would want to choke out the cross of Christ in your life. Don't let it happen. 
Let God be in charge of your finances and allow these things to continue to grow in your heart. My fav- one of my favorite trees, I like trees. I don't know if you like trees. Um, I love learning about trees and how they grow and I'm not saying I'm good at growing any of them, but there's, there's one tree in particular, Chinese bamboo. And it's very difficult to grow, at least it would be for me, because it requires patience. And you put this seed in the ground, and you have to water it for four years before anything even comes up out of the ground. I've heard people from time to time say, listen, we heard you guys talk about giving. We heard, we heard you guys say something about generosity. I, I put something in. I wrote a check. I went online. I, I put something in. I'm just not seeing God do anything. Listen, do you trust God enough that even when you don't see the results right away, even when you don't see the opportunities right away, do you trust God enough to keep watering? Amazing thing about Chinese bamboo is that sometime in year five, it becomes one of the fastest growing trees on the planet. In a period of five weeks, it could grow as high as 90 feet. Listen, I don't know, it's between you and God what he wants to do in your life in the area of generosity. But I know that he wants to demonstrate something to every single one of us, that he can meet our needs, that we can trust him, and that he can use you in ways you never saw coming if you'll trust him. Let's pray together. Today, just by way of application in this moment with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to give you the freedom to to go before God. This is between you and him. This is not about how much money you make or how much you're spending right now. We're not laying any specifics on the table, but between you and him, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart about how you're handling your finances. And let the Spirit of God help you pull the weeds off the edges of your field, off the middle of your field, if he needs to. Maybe in this moment of prayer, you say, God, all I have is yours. I want to demonstrate that to you, even if others don't see it. Heads about nice clothes. We started the what if experiment back in November. We've had a lot of new folks come to our church. Maybe you weren't part of it, you want to be. Maybe you've been wrestling with it ever since. Maybe you've laid out of church during the series and you're still wrestling with it. And you, but you decide, you know what? Before God, I'm going to take the step today of giving my first fruits or maybe creating a little more space at the edge of your field. If you want to do that today, the what if experiment cards are at the help center today. You can take one with you, fill it out, bring it back. Bible says, write out the vision, make it plain. Be clear with God what it is that you want to do. Make sure you've gone to him first because he may put something small or something great on your heart. It's between you and him. But God sent his son on a rescue mission. Set us apart for his honor and glory to put him on display. Throughout this series, maybe the the seed that's been placed in your heart is is the seed of the gospel, and maybe you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, and I want you to have the opportunity to do that right now and say, God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. And Lord, this morning, I want the cross to be able to grow in my life. I want to be preeminent in my life. So God, I confess to you right now that I have made mistakes, that I have sinned, that I've missed the mark, but I also believe that you sent Jesus Christ to come and to pay the penalty for those sins. And 
come into my life. I ask him to do that now. I put my faith and trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection today. If you pray that today, would you let us know before you leave on that Get Connected card? Take it, fill it out, deliver it to the Help Center today. Let us know that you put your faith and trust in Christ. God, would you set us apart on a subject that hits all of us at one time or another? God, I fall short in this area at different times. God, would you set me apart in how I use my resources, what you've given to me. It all belongs to you. We'll give back whatever you desire because you are great and you're good and we can trust you. In Jesus' name.